Hello, everybody. It's Dan Woods here at the Early Adopter Research Podcast. And today I'm talking to Rick Tracy, Chief Security Officer for Telos. We're going to talk today about the three questions we've been asking everybody here at the RSA 2019 conference in San Francisco. And then, of course, we'll ask some bonus questions if we have time. But first, I'd like Rick to explain what Telos does using the NIST framework, the framework that identifies identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover as the basic food groups of cybersecurity capabilities. Once he does that, we'll know where he's coming from, and then we can move on to talking about our questions. So thanks for joining us, Rick. Thank you, Dan. So what does Telos do? Telos is a pure play cybersecurity company. Uh, we, we were founded in 1968 or 1969. Uh, and over time, we've uh, centralized our, our, our offerings on cybersecurity solutions. And at a high level, we use automation to make certain security uh, objectives easier, faster, um, less complex for, for customers. Um, the, the, the segment of the business that, that I'm most involved in is the, um, the uh, security risk and compliance management um, uh, business where we founded a, 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 a platform in, in, in 2000 uh, that is designed to operationalize security risk and compliance frameworks um, largely around the way NIST does business. So it's the risk management framework, the cybersecurity framework, uh, and more recently, um, we help organizations who have a have a desire to become FedRAMP certified. We help that we we operationalize that framework as well. Um, and a more nuanced uh, offering is uh, federal government contractors who have to do who do business for the federal government um, have to comply with this new standard called 800-171 for. Uh, controlled unclassified information. And so we also offer a solution that helps uh, those organizations deal with that that uh, cyber cybersecurity requirement. Got it. And so you're able to provide essentially, it sounds like it's it's a uh, not providing cybersecurity uh, control capabilities, but more cybersecurity management capabilities. Correct. It, yeah, it's that's a that's a that's a great point. Um, uh, it's it's more about helping organizations understand and demonstrate and evidence that they have met security controls that are needed for their systems to be operational. Uh, and so that's particularly true as it relates to the RMF, where there's this notion of, a, uh, of an authority to operate, or ATO. Um, and RMF was the risk management framework. Yes, yes. Um, it, but that the, the ATO requirement is, isn't doesn't exist per se with the cybersecurity framework where uh, people recognize the, the the cybersecurity framework based on a core set of, of terms called identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Um, and it's, that is, it's, that's not intended to be a mandatory framework. It's, it is a voluntary framework that came about as a result of an executive order uh, in, I think, 2013, 2013. Um, the framework was launched by NIST in 2014. It was intended for critical infrastructure sectors, of which there are 16 as identified by the de uh, Department of Homeland Security. The, the framework has become so popular, though, that it's not, just, it's not just critical infrastructure sectors that are adopting it. 
more than 20 countries, as I understand it, around the world have embraced the cybersecurity framework. And industries outside of critical infrastructure are also recognizing it for the benefits that it offers to identify cybersecurity objectives. And as a, as a result of a gap assessment process, cybersecurity outcomes that can, that can drive a remediation plan so that you can get from where you are to where you want to be. That NIST refers to that as um, a, a target profile, where, what your objective um, capabilities are, and a current profile where you, where you actually are based on some gap assessment process that, that yield um, an understanding of what the gaps are so that you can uh, prioritize remediation plans. Got it. And, and somebody would be using Tillos to uh, document and manage that whole process. Uh, yes. Uh, it, maybe a way to think about it is to operationalize the process. So much like TurboTax hel uh, helps someone step through uh, the, the process of creating their, 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 tax, uh, 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 their tax reporting or so, uh, the, 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 um, the idea behind our, our products, all of them, is to, is to create a, a, a purpose-built workflow for RMF, something that's slightly different for FedRAMP, something that's different again for CSF, the cybersecurity framework, and it's a, it's a wizard, if you will, that helps people gather, organize, collect, and and document the data that's needed to come to some conclusion. But it doesn't end there because um, this notion of continuous monitoring, then at least as it pertains to FedRAMP and to the risk management framework, once you've gotten uh, to the point where you understand your risk posture, you have to manage it over time using um, automated continuous monitoring. Got it. So, yeah, this sounds like a very enterprise software-oriented solution, you know, for um, for cybersecurity. So, now we're going to move to the three questions. You know, the, these questions are intended to kind of be launching ramps for, you know, what you think about these concepts. The first question is about zero trust. And what I've been trying to struggle with with people is the notion of what does it really mean in practice right now? Because the ideal world, like, like using your terminology, you know, the target, you know, uh, for zero trust is a world in which you don't have a perimeter, in which you know everybody, every asset is uh, protected uh, based on it, it's identifying itself to the system, you know, the system then understanding what it is, what it wants to get access, and then creating essentially a kind of a custom micro segment around that that asset or that that person. So that it can do the work it needs to do, and but also cybersecurity is insured as well, and anything nefarious is detected immediately. Now, most people don't have a perimeterless world, and they're going to have a perimeter uh, for the foreseeable future. But people are going to be moving in and out of that perimeter. Sometimes people will be inside the perimeter, and they they might not be need to be trusted then. So when they're outside of the perimeter. They, of course, you know, need to identify themselves in, in order to get access to, to, to important resources, whether they're in the cloud or on-premise. So I guess what I've been trying to figure out is, you know, what does, what does zero trust really mean, you know, for uh, as a practical matter? You know, d does it mean just better authentication uh, while you're inside the perimeter? Does it mean having to create a cloud gateway if you're outside the perimeter. You know, what is it, what is it, how is some a CISO going to crystallize this into a, 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 a program, 
uh, that that really helps them create better cybersecurity? Yeah, that's a that's honestly a really good question. Um, um, let me just back up and talk about perimeter for a moment, because there are those who believe that a that in large part perimeters don't exist, and if they do exist, the perimeter is um, massively dynamic, and it's a function of where all of your laptops, mobile devices happen to be. And so a way to think about the perimeter is that it's not a static boundary anymore. It's, it's constantly moving based on where your, your employees are and the assets that they have with them. Um, so uh, it, it, the, 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 the discussion about does a perimeter exist or not, uh, that's an interesting one, but I, I have a I have a tendency to lean towards perimeterless or dynamic perimeter. Um, that that's how I view it, just because of the the things that I just mentioned. Now, as it relates to zero trust, you know, uh, as with all things in this industry, and I honestly, Dan, I've become a bit jaded because the uh, this this industry is heavily marketing driven. And an example of that is this notion of zero trust, which to me is, you know, it's a concept that, that begs for more definition. I, what I know about it is exactly as you describe. It has to do with ensuring that the right people have access to the resources that they need and, and having a higher degree of confidence uh, being, I guess, zero trust is absolutely sure that you know the right people only have access to uh, certain resources and perhaps that means putting a boundary around those resources that require uh, zero trust uh, I, I don't actually know and I think that like many things the definition for this thing about zero trust is is evolving um, I also will say that it doesn't help organizations who don't have a lot of skills and resources. What is a smaller company who doesn't have the ability to implement something? It's, it sounds like it's something that you do, not something that you buy, which means that you have to, you have to have a way to make stuff work together, which not all organizations have the ability. Right, and and if you think of the progenitors of this, you know, at Google with their BeyondCore. Um, uh, structure and which they implemented with a very, very rich stack of custom-built components. You know, their idea of zero trust is a very full, deep, wide implementation that has considered so many different things and and, yeah. and, and has a rich implementation. You know, mo no vendor has all of that. You cannot buy that right. from anybody. And so the, 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 I guess the interesting question to me is, on the other hand, it's a very trenchant and real observation. This is, it is true that we can no longer think of the perimeter as a place inside of which we have safety. Right. So, so the question is, what do you do about that observation, I guess, is, is where, where I'm trying to get it. And, and uh, there are different products that will help you. Obviously, better authentication that works wherever you are, you know, that, 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 that is more effective, that doesn't, isn't susceptible to common weaknesses, that's better. You know, yeah. that's going to help, you know, because you can strongly identify somebody. Yeah. Then being able to do segmentation, you know, very, very quickly, you know, uh, and, and, and route things differently, whether it's using, you know, different kinds of, of software-defined networking or software-defined, you know, WAN, you know, that's also helpful. Yes. The question is, like, 
how many of these capabilities would a CISO need to put together before they could say, <laughs> you know what, I think I'm doing a pretty good job with Zero Trust? Yeah, uh, that's a good question because you, there's been all this talk for years about defense in depth and all the layers of security that need to work in harmony with each other. And every year you come to shows like this and it seems like there's another layer for which there's another set of technologies that have to be integrated with what you already have and what you already have is being replaced by the next gen whatever it has. So the, the problem just becomes increasingly difficult. You, when you walk on, onto the showroom floor and if you're not schooled in this industry, you look at the, at the, at the sea of booths that, that are there and, and, and I just put myself in the shoes of someone who's not from the tech industry right. and, I, and, I, and I ask myself, what would I do if I, you know, where would I start by, by uh, talking with companies about w what I need? And uh, I don't know, it just seems very confusing to me. I'll, uh, to your point about technologies that support this zero trust mindset, there's as many, as many vendors as are here to this week. There are many, many, many more who can't afford to be here. They can't afford a booth and they can't afford to travel to be here. I have a friend who has a, a, an idea about zero trust where basically he assumes, like the press uh, or the articles that you read these days will, will lead you to believe, there's two types of companies, those that have been hacked and those that don't know they've been hacked. Right. And I don't necessarily right. subscribe to that thinking, but if you do, his philosophy is that critical server has been compromised within the past hour. He doesn't know that, he assumes that. So what he does is he, 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 is, he assumes zero trust as it relates to critical servers. He takes them down and replaces them with pristine images. So if someone is in that server, they're no longer in the server because it's being replaced at some frequency that the customer or the user identifies 15 minutes, an hour, 90 minutes, uh, every day. Um, and so my, I guess my point is that that's an interesting different view of what zero trust uh, might look like. He doesn't trust that the server is uncompromised. Uh, but my point is, as time goes on, the definition of zero trust will likely evolve beyond the, the right, current just, thinking. Just just the individual inside the... Uh, yes. Yeah, and so it, it just sounds like it's... I think we've made some progress in this because the idea is, you know, abstracting the thinking is what's important and then figuring out what's important for you to react. And then that goes to what you said about the, the, the vast sea of, of, of vendors is goes to my next question, which is about portfolio pruning. And that is, like you said, every generation of every every generation of cybersecurity, every new RSA show, you have a new set of vendors, a new set of capabilities coming out to deal with a new set of threats. Now that's natural in some sense because the attack surface has grown. You now have things you never had before that are being recognized as having a need for cybersecurity, such as IoT devices. You now have a mobile attack surface that's become much larger. You have, you have devices that are moving around uh, and be used in different contexts. And, and, and you have more and more powerful content being exchanged. So with all of that, of course you'd want to have more powerful solutions to handle it. But it seems like that it's always additive. Mm -hmm. when, it, when are we ever going to get to the point where we can prune the portfolio, and what would it mean to prune the portfolio? Well, uh, yeah. Well, I have a couple ways to respond to that question. Um, a lot of a lot of things that you see at shows like this, in my opinion, aren't products; they're features. So over time, what I would hope to and see. And how would you define the difference between a product and a feature? Uh, a, a feature is 
uh, is a, a very important capability that probably should reside on a larger platform as opposed to be a standalone thing that the user now has to figure out how to integrate and get the most benefit from by integrating it with IDS, IPS, encryption, firewalls, uh, DLP, you know, the, the, the sea of, of security solutions that exist within an organization now. So there, there, are, there are a number of technologies, in, in my opinion, that are, more, that are more consistent with what I would view as a feature than a standalone product that would that would that justify the existence of an operational company. So over time, what I would hope to see is that the market consolidation, that some of these smaller companies get bought by the larger companies, they're embedded and integrated, so that you or I don't have to figure out how to do that. Yeah, and the, and the way I, I see that is that's pruning uh, at the vendor level. Yes. It's not pruning at the capability level. So And so the, the so so... That's one definition of pruning that's come up, which is pruning is pruning of vendors, reducing vendors. The, the, number, the capabilities stay the same, but the number of vendors shrinks. Yes. Is there any other meaningful way we can prune? Well, I can only tell you what I do. Mm-hmm. When, when, when I talk to a vendor about their solution and what, what they feel they can do for Telos, the first thing I ask is, what can I get rid of? What technology or technologies can you replace? Because as you, as you pointed out a few minutes ago, this, where everything is completely additive does not scale, right? And so my question to... Uh, but is the answer ever, ever yes, you can replace this? Yes, you can replace that? Yes. Like what, what, give me a scenario in which some, one capability replaces another. Uh, we were talking to... Um, some years ago, we were talking to a company called Darktrace, and they identified a number of things in our in our security portfolio that they felt we could we could live without. And I think, generally speaking, we agreed with them. Um, and I apologize, Dan. I don't recall exactly what no, they said. No, that's, right? that's, that's what, fine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because uh, well, most of the time, I see replacement happening within a capability level. Like somebody has a web application firewall, yeah. and then a new web application firewall comes in and says, or maybe they have four web application firewalls, and then they say, we realize, well, we have too many. Now let's, uh, let's, let's, let's consolidate, and now we have one. Yes. Now, we haven't pruned the capability, but we've pruned the number of vendors. Th- and that's the, that's the goal, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, to reduce the cost and the complexity right, of right. managing. Right. Well... Uh, uh, that's good. Well, I, you know, I think I'll, I'll, I'll take that up uh, with, uh, with some of my pals at Darktrace. The, the next question I have is about, you know, uh, cloud migration of cybersecurity. Um, and I guess what I'm trying to understand is, is there anything um, interesting to consider when, as we think about people migrating applications to SaaS and other cloud-based forms, migrating infrastructure to cloud like and 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 key platforms like office 365 um you know what what are the cybersecurity implications of that and you know how much security will end up in the cloud you know and 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 because right now we have a very big cloud mentality but most of the checks that are being written for cybersecurity are written for on-premise systems Mm -hmm. and so Given the pace of change in cybersecurity, which is slow, uh, 
it seems like we may be there. It, it seems like I guess we're, we we could be in danger of having cybersecurity retard the migration of the cloud. Yeah. Um, the migration to the cloud. Um, yeah. Let, as it relates to as, as it relates to the cloud and security implications around the cloud, the shot heard around the world in 2014 was the CIA saying, "We're going to the cloud," and. I think that caused many organizations to say, if it's good enough for the CIA, it, we've got to at least determine, you know, it's got to be good enough for us, so let's, let's figure it out. And so, as you point out, the, the, the adoption has, has been uh, slower than I think people might expect, but it's accelerated, as I understand it, based on, largely based on the CIA's decision to adopt the cloud in this, this region called C2S, uh, Commercial Cloud Services. Um, by the way, we helped um, uh, AWS and the agency manage their cybersecurity compliance and risk management process to, to help accelerate that migration process. So we're very savvy as it relates to uh, that process. Um, the other thing that I'll mention is that an executive from um, the agency at a public sector conference, it's, it's, a video, it's a video on YouTube, said, the cloud on its worst day is better than client-server technology. Some, some claim about that, and it was directly related to security. The, 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 the focus of that comment was, was directly related to security. Um, and I happen to agree with that because many organizations can't afford to invest in the, the, the infrastructure and the physical security characteristics that you get just by virtue of you putting your workloads into the, into the, into the cloud. Um, gates, guards, guns, separation of uh, duties, access to systems and data, all of that stuff is managed by AWS, physical security controls, management uh, 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 procedures and such. And the other thing... Yeah, that, and at the layer of the network and a lot of the, the, the layer of the network, the layer of the machine, a lot of those things are underneath the, the, the kind of cloud API boundary. Yes. And it's not that they don't have to be taken care of. It's just that somebody else is doing it. Uh, yeah, uh, in a man from the managed service standpoint, right? Uh, and the other thing that's really important is that these cloud uh, cloud platforms continue to innovate around with with security tooling, and so the consistency of the tooling. If your stuff is in the cloud, you don't have a hodgepodge of 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 technologies that maybe are difficult to integrate and, and uh, require a lot of resources to, uh, to understand and manage. Um, the consistency of the cloud tooling, security tooling in particular, is, um, I think, makes the job easier. Um, so, how much security belongs in the cloud, I think that's for everyone to a ask themselves, you know, what are you comfortable with? But I think we're getting to the point where People are becoming increasingly comfortable for the reason that I mentioned. You know, the adoption for critical organizations like the CIA—it's got to be good. It's good for them, and how can it not be good for me? Um, and then the the consistency of the tooling and the and the constant innovation to make things better. It, AWS, as an example, um, releases a number of new services at their reInvent show uh, every November, December. Right. Yes. They 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 have uh, definitely a uh, engine of, of of innovation going yes. there. Um, okay, so I have three bonus questions. We can just do these quickly. Okay. First of all is one's about ops discipline. Like, I think there's a strong argument that most companies 
would be better off if their CISOs didn't invest in another cybersecurity capability, but invested in improving their operational discipline with respect to configuration management, patch management, asset inventory, automation levels, you know, abstraction of all this so it can be managed at a higher level. And, you know, even at the highest level, you know, made into self-service tools so people can, you know, you know uh, configure or at least declare uh, cybersecurity events that need to be reacted to. Um, but uh, it, this seems to be like one of these sort of like what Mark Twain, Twain said about classics, you know, they're books that are often praised and seldom read. <laughs> and so it seems like that this, this might be one of these principles that is often agreed with but seldom implemented. Why, why do you think that operational discipline, do you, do you agree with the idea that operational discipline should be uh, more of a focus of more companies? And why do you think that it that, that people want to do it, but they don't seem to do it. Yeah, uh, well, uh, yes, it, it's the cart before the horse before you start talking, you know, if you're, if you're talking about AI and ML before you, ha before you have a, an inventory of what it is you need to protect within your organization and some vulnerability management uh, capability that drives a patch management, those are just, that's basic blocking and tackling. Why would you be talking about advanced cybersecurity management capabilities if you don't have the fundamentals uh, nailed down. So I, th that stuff has to come first. Why, why is it not, uh, to your question, why is it not uh, addressed when everyone recognizes that it's important? I'll say this, I think it's more difficult. I mean, it seems pedestrian, some of these functions, but it's, these things are more difficult than you might think they are. So um, it's easy to say well, it, these things should be done, they're, they're fundamental, but it's not, uh, it, it takes more effort. And, and an interesting point is at the Innovation Sandbox uh, on Monday, the, the, the startup company that won the first prize was a asset inventory technology, not some advanced ML you know, I th so I think that there's a recognition that these these capabilities are uh, are essential, but maybe there, it's it, it's also being recognized that tooling that exists today doesn't make it as easy or foolproof as it as it ought to be. Got it. The other question I have is about cybersecurity culture and and awareness and training. This is an, again something that is really important, but people often don't do. Uh, as as well as they should. What do you think? Um, what have you? What have you? You've you've obviously worked with a lot of intelligence uh, agencies, which do have a pretty strong cybersecurity awareness culture. You know what? What is the the secret to you know getting that culture in place and, and having it sustained? They have a very important mission, but they're not for profit, right? Uh, organizations that are trying to maximize profitability are concerned about things like consultants being engaged on billable assignments. So every time you take someone off of a billable project to put them through, through training, there's a, but there's a bottom line impact to the, to the company from a profitability standpoint. And all of the, I shouldn't say all, the, 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 the conventional thinking around cybersecurity awareness and training it all takes time. It's CBTs, it's, you know, uh, auditorium presentations. All of this takes people out of, out of the line of the work that they're supposed to be doing for a customer. 
So there's always this tug of war between the security people in the, in the company and the operations people who are trying to deliver on a number, and you can understand their perspective. <clears throat> How do we minimize the amount of time that we have to send people to security training? So I would say that um, from an industry standpoint, cyber security training and awareness is a, is a segment of the industry that is ripe for disruption and innovation. I don't know the answer. It seems to me that if, uh, the way I think about it is that it shouldn't be heavy-duty awareness security uh, awareness training for three hours on this week, and then you get it again in six months or a year. There needs to be some way of slow and steady trickle charge using battery terminology to reinforce concepts in ways that are less disruptive that you can handle while, while via a podcast or, or, or uh, a tw you know, some Twitter uh, uh, mechanism while you're commuting back and forth to home as opposed to Good. dedicating time during your day. And the last question is cyber insurance. Um, a lot of people are being forced to buy cyber insurance and um, they uh, don't like it because they feel that it's bad insurance. It doesn't um, uh, cover enough. Uh, there's a lot of escape hatches to avoid paying. Yep. Um, uh, how, but, but very few CISOs, CTOs or CIOs win the argument, no, we're not going to buy it. So what's the, how can they, they kind of turn this, this question of cyber insurance to their advantage and actually have it make a positive impact? Well, cyber insurance has a place and, you know, uh, uh, it has a, it has a place and, um, low frequency, very, very, very high impact events. That's what we should be focused on as it relates to insurance. Um, and I, the, the, maybe the thing that you're referring to is the Zurich uh, insurance uh, claim that was rejected be for the parent of Oreo cookie or something like that, where um, the, 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 the Zurich uh, denied the, the claim, which was millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars as I understand it, because they determined that the the, the mechanism was uh, the the attack mechanism wasn't was determined to be an act of terrorism or war oh, or right right and so that's if that continues it's going to destroy the cyber uh, cyber uh, insurance industry you know because people just aren't going to pay for something if they think that they're not going to have the coverage Got it. Um, yeah so uh, I would I, my, my advice and this is what I we do is work with your broker have your broker ask those tough questions. Make sure that the, the exclusions and the caveats and the footnotes are all understood so that when you buy cyber insurance, you have high degree of confidence that you're going to get what you need if and, God forbid, when you, when, you need that, uh, when you need that coverage. Got it. Thank you so much, Rick. This is a really fun call. I am, I or call, <laughs> excuse me, uh, podcast. I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you, Dan.